Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. I'm Jason Brunley. Uh, I'm the assistant winemaker at uh, Canis Feast Winery uh, over in Carleton. I've uh, uh, been working there since 2009 in different capacities. I moved into the assistant winemaker position in 2016. Um, so I guess you want to know a little bit about like kind of what got me into, uh, into winemaking. Sure, I guess. why wine? Yeah, so I grew, up in, uh, I grew up in Memphis, so that's where I'm originally from. Uh, I worked in restaurants for about 15 years or so. Uh, and that was kind of a natural progression out of that uh, that, uh, that led me into, uh, into winemaking. Uh, I, was, uh, I moved to Oklahoma with my, uh, with my first wife from Memphis. Uh, we, we moved to Oklahoma and I worked in a French bistro uh, in Oklahoma City owned by two French brothers uh, from Grenoble, France in Oklahoma City of all places, you know. Uh, but uh, absolutely wonderful experience. I was a uh, wine steward there for eight, nine years um, and I kind of headed up a wine education with the servers uh, that, were, that were there. Um, the more I started learning about wine, uh, the more I wanted to learn about the process and the wine making process itself. Uh, I actually started looking at places to grow grapes in Oklahoma. Uh, so. Um, uh, there was a little little area southeast uh, Oklahoma that uh, is kind of just the very tail edge of the uh, the Ozark Mountains. Uh, so it's high elevation, um, and you're kind of uh, buffered from the wind. Uh, it's not on the plains as much, and so I was looking at that, and I was thinking, gosh, that's a that's a really good spot down there. I still think about it. I still have that uh, that spot in my mind. Um, but uh, I got to thinking about it, and I was like, you know. It's going to take just as much effort. It's going to take just as much money to uh, to do this, and I'm going to make mediocre wine, you know, at best. <laughs> and so uh, I kind of nixed that idea. And uh, my boss at the time, uh, Michel Boutillon, he's uh, the guy that uh, one of the owners of the restaurant that I was working at. He just kept telling me, he was like, "Buddy, you need to go to Oregon. You need to go to Oregon," you know. And so uh, my girlfriend at the time, she's my my wife now. Uh, we came out uh, in. Uh, 2007 uh, on a vacation, uh, you know, work uh, pleasure trip, and uh, basically flew into Eugene. Uh, I wanted to fly into uh, into the southern part of the valley because I knew if we flew into Portland, we'd just stay up north and never get to see, you know, the the southern part of the valley. So I flew into Eugene. We rented a car and uh, you know drove up through the valley and did the whole uh, wine thing. And then we went over to the coast and uh, we both just fell in love with the place. You know, it was just uh, it, it was it's the only place I've ever been where it, it just felt like home. It felt really like ah, oh, this is exactly where I need to be. You know, and uh, so we were sitting on the coast. And uh, I remember this very distinctly, you know, the waves are just crashing in. And uh, I looked at her and, I, and I, I said, you know, I'm moving out here and you can come with me if you want to, <laughs> you know. And uh, we flew back out three weeks later and started looking for houses to buy. So, uh, yeah, it was one of those things, uh, strike while the iron's hot, you know. Uh, I, I just always felt like, you know, if I, if I didn't do it, there was always going to be this point like 20 years down the road that I'd look back and go, God, you know, what if, what if. And I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to do that. And so I uh, moved out here, didn't know anyone, neither of us did. Uh, she was working for Oklahoma State University at the time. She's a librarian, um, so she was uh, 
heading up their uh, digital archives uh, uh, there at the library, and so uh, she had tenure. Um, so she kept a place in Oklahoma, um, and she could mostly work, uh, you know, telecommute, you know, um, and she'd have to fly back in, you know, once a month or something like that to uh, to hit, hit meetings and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, so anyway, uh, started here. I, it, yeah, easy enough to find a restaurant job. So I started working uh, here in uh, McMinnville um, at La Rambla. I worked there until uh, harvest of 2008, and then I got my, uh, my first harvest job uh, at Lang, uh, Lang Estate. Uh, so over in Dundee with Jesse Lang there and uh, Don and Wendy, they were great. What a, what a wonderful first, uh, first experience that was. Um, yeah, they, they were super, super nice folks. Um, and, uh, you know, just learned a lot. I, I was total, total newbie. I mean, I, you know, I didn't know anything about winemaking other than what I'd read and, you know, uh, hadn't worked in agriculture. I mean, the first day uh, before we even got into harvest, I was out there suckering vines and stuff, you know, and it was just, oh man, I was like, oh wow, really into it, right? You know, this is, uh, this is the deal. Um, and. Uh, I enjoyed it though. I really did. I enjoyed the uh, the viticultural aspect of it, you know, as much as the uh, the enological aspect of it. You know, um, the vines themselves I just find fascinating. I think uh, there's something very enamoring about vineyards. You know, they're just really really neat. Like uh, you know, when you look at them, just how they're laid out in the rows, they're just very pretty. And you know, um, the vines themselves, I, I really enjoyed that a lot. So anyway, uh, great uh, great first harvest experience. Uh, learned a lot from Jesse. Uh, he was a good. Uh, a good teacher, uh, especially for uh, someone just coming into the uh, into the business. He he took time, um, you know, actually explained things to me. Um, I had always had kind of a knack for math and science, so that always came fairly easily to me. Um, and so, you know, that aspect of winemaking has is just kind of very intuitive. Uh, it, it all makes sense, you know, the chemistry aspects and, and how things work. Um, which I definitely find, you know, very fascinating. Uh, but he, he explained a lot to me. Um, one of the things that he said, I'll never, I'll never forget, he was like, so you want to be a winemaker? He said, well, what you really need to, need to be is an electrician, you know, a carpenter, uh, a mechanic. <laughs> you, know, you, need to, you need to be that before, before you get into winemaking, because otherwise you're just going to be, you're going to be paying people all the time to come and fix stuff, because there's always stuff that's breaking in a, in a, in a winery, you know? And that, and man, there are no, no truer words than that. They're really, you have to wear many hats in a, in a winery, especially a small winery, you know, uh, where, where you can't hire people just to do, you know, particular little jobs and stuff. Uh, landscaping, like, you know, <laughs> at the winery that I'm working at right now, we've been, been working on a big landscaping project and stuff, so uh, it's definitely true in, in that regard. Um, so, uh, progressing in that, um, Oh, uh, you know, one of the things that really, the more I learned uh, about wine, after that first harvest, uh, you know, uh, I wasn't working in the industry. I got a job at Canis Feast working um, in the tasting room, and they had a restaurant at the time, and so I was kind of, you know, doing, uh, you know, double work on that. I would work the restaurant side and then work the tasting room side. Uh, but I wasn't actually in production, you know, uh, which was fine. I mean, I know that, you know, it's tough. You've got you to, you know, take some time and get your foot in the door and, and do whatever to, to, to get back there. 
especially if you don't have uh, a degree, you know, which I didn't. Uh, and so coming in, you know, with that that kind of novice aspect, I had a lot of uh, ambition, uh, you know, a lot of desire, but I didn't have didn't have that piece of paper, you know. And so it's kind of difficult uh, to uh, you know to get to get your foot in the door in that. Uh, especially, I think the more that the wine industry has progressed, you know, uh, you know, in Oregon especially, uh, you know, you've got uh, with Oregon State and Chemeketa and stuff like that. Uh, you've got uh, you know, all sorts of different programs now that. Uh, you know that if, uh, so you've got a lot of opportunities but with that you've got more people you know that are that are are you know getting those getting those pieces of paper so the competition is is tough and then you've got california you got people coming up from california you know wanting to work here uh, so I, I, it was it was it was very difficult to uh, for me to to move into the production side of things, which again you know it worked out fine. But uh, I, I spent a lot of time on the the sales side of it and the, the hospitality side, which coming from you know the restaurant industry it was you know natural fit. It was fine. Uh, I enjoy talking to people. I, I think that's something that a lot of winemakers, uh, some of them have uh, a little difficulty with, you know, actually, you know, uh, relating to the public. Some of them are uh, <laughs> a little persnickety, <laughs> you know, they, like, keep that guy back there. Don't let, don't let the folks see him. Um, kind of like, uh, reminds me of a story that I heard about uh, David Lett uh, back in the day before they had a, you know, a tasting room when he was still around. You know, you'd have people, you know, that found out about, you know, the wines and stuff like that, and they'd come knocking on the door, and he'd open the door. What? <laughs> you know, <laughs> we were just wanting to taste some of your wine. Okay, <laughs> you know, <laughs> grudgingly pour you some wine. Uh, but uh, yeah, even Dickie Rath, I heard, you know, was kind of like that too. He was very, uh, very kind of ornery. Uh, but uh, that kind of leads into uh, once I learned about, uh, you know, about the, the history of, uh, of Oregon winemaking, I found that really fascinating. The more that I learned about that, I, you know, uh, those guys really, you know, that, that pioneering spirit, uh, it was kind of like, you know, it was like, wow, you know, that's kind of what, uh, what I felt like, you know, it was like, ah, I'm moving out here and, you know, doing something, you know, very edgy, even though, you know, really wasn't, but, uh, but that's the way I felt, you know, uh, but like those guys, you know, they all graduated from, uh, you know, from, from Davis, you know, so they were the first graduating class at Davis. So you had four, four guys that graduated out of that, uh, out of that, you know, uh, viticulture and knology department there. Three of them came to Oregon, <laughs> you know, so I'm sure the folks at, at Davis were not really happy about that, you know, <laughs> you start this program and all these guys are going to, going to Oregon and everybody thought they were crazy. Crazy too, you know. I think that you know that paper that Charles Curry wrote, you know, about uh, about pushing the uh, the limits for Pinot Noir and pushing that 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 cold climate uh, aspect. Uh, everybody thought, ah, you know, you're nuts for going up there. You're never going to ripen that. You know, it's too too rainy. It's too cold. You know. Uh, but those guys really—they did their—they did their homework, you know. They, uh, you know, uh, you look at at, at Lett especially, you know. He went to Burgundy and checked out a lot of places and came up here for, you know, for quite a bit of time and looked at things and really analyzed things and and saw like the summers are very dry here, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know, you're you're not sitting in in water all the time, you know, especially not anymore, right? <laughs> things are definitely changing that way. But uh, yeah, uh, so that really intrigued me. I mean, finding out about those guys and and uh, the history of that and 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 again how uh, the communal aspect i mean they were really pioneering something here you know uh 
there wasn't an industry. They were starting something totally new here. And uh, so they had to work together. And I think that's one of the things also that you, you learn about um, learn about all those original guys from the 60s and the 70s even into the early 80s and how they all worked together to promote the Oregon wine industry as a whole you know and that was something that I really found uh, very attractive as well I've got a kind of you know hippy dippy spirit anyway so uh, you know that that totally worked you know and you know, with me everybody uh, when I moved out here everybody in, in Oklahoma they're like why aren't, you, why aren't you going to California man I was like you obviously don't know me if you think I'm gonna fit in a nap of it <laughs> definitely not uh, Oregon definitely suits me a lot better um, but uh, yeah, so that, that whole pioneering uh, spirit aspect really, uh, that, that attracted me a lot, and it still does. I love the communal aspect that, uh, that the wine industry still has, uh, you know, uh, working together and promoting one another. Uh, when you look at the size of Oregon's wine industry, it's so small, you know, in comparison just even to Washington, you know. Uh, Washington's wine industry is like four times the size of Oregon's, you know, and California is like 40 times, <laughs> you know. It's, uh, it's so, so tiny. Uh, and so it's, it's a constant, uh, constant work and, and, and process. A lot of people still in, in middle America don't even realize that there's a wine industry in Oregon. You, know, you wouldn't believe how many people, you know, if they're not into wine, you know, all they think about is Napa, right? That's the only place they know, <laughs> you know, at least in the United States. Uh, and, and so it's still a, a work in progress as far as trying to, uh, you know, trying to, to get folks to, uh, uh, to, to understand. Uh. <laughs> Go ahead and roll with it. We're okay. <clears throat> Should be yeah. okay. No, but, uh, but yeah, so uh, I guess that's, uh, you know, that's that. Do you have any, uh, any questions oh, about? Uh, so many questions. Uh, yeah. First of all, I'm going to quickly introduce. My name is Rich Schmidt. Yep. I was here with Jason Brumley. I said. <laughs> Sorry, I was rolling on August on that 17, thing. 2021. <laughs> we're at the Nicholson Library outside of uh, Unlinville campus. We're going to pause for a second here while you, while we uh, have a quick lawnmower go by. Yeah, a little landscaping, man. You got to keep the place looking good. Hey, they're basically mowing constantly, so, you know. Right. Well, that's, yeah. All good. I mean, You're okay. On a campus, always, you yeah, know. There's exactly. always, but it really is a beautiful campus, though. Absolutely gorgeous. Dunn's does a nice job with it, and they do. They work really hard at it. You can tell. So. Yeah. Yeah, you've got the uh, you know the Grove out there that's right on 99 and everything. That's where uh, what the uh, the IPNC happens yes, every exactly. year and stuff. Yeah. That's funny because I still haven't made it out to that because I don't I, I don't work at a winery that focuses on Pinot Noir, <laughs> which is the irony of you know, I moved out here, uh, you know, uh, with the intent of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, you know, yeah, the whole Burgundian idea. And I work at a winery that makes very little Pinot Noir, any, any of a little that. bit of Chardonnay too. It's so funny, <laughs> it really is. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, you know, I mean, there's nowhere else in the valley that I could work with like 16 different you know varietals and, and done well, you know. Yeah. 
<laughs> so you mentioned you mentioned growing up in Memphis, getting into yeah. wine, getting into the restaurant industry. First. Yeah, yeah. So tell me about that, and tell me about what so what what point sort of wine becomes part of something that's on your radar. What point do you start caring about wine? When I when I moved to Oklahoma, so um, I worked in Memphis, a couple of different places, uh, but uh, I, I I got into kind of fine dining uh, at a uh, a place called Owen Brennan's, it's owned by the the or partially owned by the Brennan family out of New Orleans. Uh, so if you've heard of Commander's Palace or Brennan's, those are those are owned by that family, and uh, you know those are mainstays in in in, in New Orleans. So uh, got into you know an aspect of French cuisine with uh, the, the the Cajun Creole influence uh, with that. Um, and so wine pairs beautifully with uh, with that food. You know, beer does as well, but uh, definitely uh, the, the wine uh, wine plays a big part in that. Uh, then, like I said, I moved to Oklahoma, and I started working for uh, Michel and Alain Bouchillon. Uh, they're from Grenoble, France, and they own a, a French bistro there in Oklahoma. It's been around for 35 years now. Um, and that's really where I got into uh, into wine. Um, uh, that was a big. We had a, a, a crazy great wine list. I mean, you know, uh, anything from you know three dollars a glass all the way up to thirteen hundred dollars a bottle or, or more. You know, um, and so working with some of those, uh, uh, that really really piqued my interest. Is like, holy crap! You know, I've never. I can't afford a $1,300 bottle of wine, I mean, you know, and it wasn't like we were selling those every night, but, you know, we certainly did occasionally, and that was, uh, that was pretty fun, especially when the tables would let you, uh, you know, let you taste like, oh, here, you should, you should try this, you know, because you know you're never going to get a chance to, to taste that, that, that Chateau Latour again, you know, it's, uh, it's just not on, on my radar. Um, and so that was a heck of a lot of fun to, to get to work with that and, and just learn about uh, about those wines. I, I started buying books, you know, about uh, about French wines and, and just wine in general, uh, just just educating myself, learning more about it. And that was a, the, the self-education aspect of it. That's kind of the way that I've done with winemaking in general, <laughs> you know, even since I moved here. I mean, I did take classes at Chemeketa, you know, when I came out um, in... What, 2009 uh, and 2010, I took classes out there. Um, and uh, again, you know, it, it all just kind of came very, very natural to me. Um, but getting back to your, to your question about, uh, you know, what, uh, how, uh, it was really working at, at La Baguette that, that got me really interested in wine um, and where kind of the passion started, started really flowering, um, you know. Uh, and the and the idea, you know, that that hey, you know, it might be something that I I'd like to do, you know. Um, not that I didn't enjoy working in restaurants; I really did. I loved it. I, while while I did that, uh, I absolutely loved working in restaurants. Uh, and again, <clears throat> kind of that natural progression out of that. You know, you've got food, you've got wine, you've got you know, community, you've got uh, you know conversation. Wine is a very different creature than, than other spirits or beer. You know, very, very rarely do you, do you have anybody that says, ah, oh, remember that beer that we had together, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's, you know? Maybe, you know, maybe that happens, but not, 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 not. but there's definitely uh, a, a very communal uh, thing that goes along with wine, and it, and it has been. Obviously, you look at religious aspects of it, I mean, gosh, you know, uh, you know, that, uh, 
That definitely, uh, and you know, obviously for a long time, you know, you couldn't drink water, you know, you know wine and, and, and alcohol, that was pretty much uh, what you had. It, tra it travels well, you know, uh, uh, so yeah, it's, uh, there's definitely a communal, a communal aspect that I really enjoy about that, but that, you know, goes in with the restaurants, the food, uh, the atmosphere, uh, the, the, the con convivial aspect of that, the, you know, that always really fascinated me too. Still does. It really does. I enjoy sharing uh, a, a nice bottle of wine with folks. You know. So doing the kind of the sort of self-taught and, mm -hmm. and learning, learning on the fly in restaurants. How long did it take you to feel sort of comfortable with the idea of I wine? I still don't. <laughs> I still don't. I'm learning constantly. Uh, you know, the minute that you think that you, you you've got it pegged, I mean. You know, something something comes along like last year with the smoke issues and stuff. You know, I mean, as far as in the winemaking aspect, uh, boy, you know, you've got to dance, you've got to stay on your toes, uh, and and having a good basic understanding of math and science, chemistry really helps mm -hmm. uh, you know if you've got a good feel for that you don't necessarily have to to know all the formulas and things like that but if you understand how things work uh, it definitely helps because uh, you've got a lot of tools that that you can have in your toolbox that you can work with in, in things like that like or you know if it rains or if it's cold you know or if it's very hot you know um, not even just in the in the winery aspect but in the vineyard as well uh, you know this year we've had to deal with a lot of heat you know I mean we've had you know, triple-digit days just constantly, and so, especially you know, growers out here not used to that. You know, I, we we get a lot of our fruit at, at the winery from from Washington. You know, 85% of our fruit comes out of Washington, even though it's made here in Oregon. Um, and so those guys are those guys are used to that. That's all high desert out there and really hot, and they're 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 used to working with that. People here, you know, it's uh, it's definitely different. The past decade has really been, uh, you know, it's it's kept people on their toes, but. Um, what was the question again? Sorry, I just maybe kind of went off uh, on that. <laughs> well, so much sort of comfort level. Oh yeah, yeah, so, uh, yeah. Uh, so um, especially with sort of the customer and also the like training, training the staff aspect of things. Sure. Yeah. Uh, well. Um, I, I, I definitely feel comfortable talking about wine, and, and I've never been afraid of, you know, of saying, I don't know, you know, uh, but I'll find out. There, you know, that's always, uh, you know, don't, don't BS people, you know. Um, because the minute you do, that you're gonna you're gonna find somebody who actually knows, you know, what <laughs> what they're talking about, <clears throat> and uh, then you just look like an idiot. So, uh, but uh, yeah, there's uh, the more you learn, I think, the more you learn about wine. Again, how it's made um, in the in the restaurant aspect, then it, it just gives you again more of those tools, kind of like in the winemaking aspect, um, in the sales aspect. You just have more of those things that you can you can relate to the customer. You know, you don't necessarily have to bore them with all of the uh, all the the intricate details and stuff. But if you find somebody who's actually interested in it, then you can actually have a, a good conversation, and that just makes the experience so much more better, uh, so much better. You know, um, so much more enjoyable. Uh, for, for I think for both of you and in the restaurant industry you definitely make better tips that way <laughs> I mean you know you do if you uh, if you are engaging with people um, and you know what you're talking about people respect that absolutely they do they, you, you, they, they have a better dining experience you know um, 
so yeah, that's. Uh, but I still, I, I'm constantly learning. I mean, you know, people ask me questions, and you know, I might have like, it's like, okay, yeah, I think this, but I don't know. That's a good question, you know. And that, but that gets me again, you know, uh, to the point of like, oh, well, I'm going to find out about that, though, you know. Uh, there's, there's always that curiosity, that, uh, that I think. Um, you have to have, I think, I think in anything that you do, if you're not curious and you're not engaged with what you're doing, I mean, you know, what's the point of it? <laughs> what are you, what are you doing? You know, uh, but, yeah. So when it came to educating sort of customers and also mm -hmm. educating staff, what did you find the most important things were for? With French wines, I think, uh, knowing the history, mm -hmm. you know, uh, with European wines in general, there's so much history, you know, and why these things are the way that they are. Uh, it's still so very new in the United States. And it, it's very kind of Wild West here, you know. There are very few rules. We can kind of do whatever the heck we want to do, you know. But it, it's, it, there's so much tradition there, and you've got the AOC or the DOC, you know, in, uh, in Italy or Spain. Uh, and those regulations, they're there for that, that history and for that tradition. Even though it, it's slowly changing, uh, you're, you're seeing some, some changes that are happening, uh, but it's still, you know, it, it's, it's like, this is the way that it's been done. There's a reason that we do it this way. Um, even though sometimes there's not a reason, <laughs> it's just because it's been done that way, and you know, uh, people are, are they're not prone to change easily, you know, especially uh, you know, especially when you've got that much history behind it, you know, just hundreds and hundreds of years of uh, uh, of making wine. So with that, I think there's also a responsibility, you know, uh, as a as a person who's selling those wines or talking about those wines, you know, uh, there's a respect, you know, with that. I think that. Uh, that you have to have, uh, I mean, you can sit there and poo-poo it if you want to, I mean, you know, but, I mean, you know, uh, you're, you're talking about someone's culture, you know, you're talking about someone's, uh, you know, past, and you've got families, generations and generations and generations that have been making wine, you know, on this property. Um, so if you don't respect that, you know, uh, you should probably take a step back, I think, and, you know, kind of, you know, think about it at least. Um, so there is a responsibility with that, you know. Um, and again, not BS, not BSing people, you know. Uh, you know, again, because there is that 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 history and uh, uh, and tradition, and it means something to these people. It's not just a beverage, you know. It's it's blood, sweat, and tears that you know that, that go into this. Um, it's it's family, it's heritage, it's uh, livelihoods for people, you know. Uh, so yeah. So there's a responsibility with that, I think, you know. So as you're in Oklahoma and you're, you're hearing you're hearing about Oregon, <laughs> right? So what what was it? Why why did why was the thought that you should come to Oregon? Why why did they think you should go to Oregon? Because I'm a long-haired hippie. <laughs> you know, that's, that's ultimately what it is. Now. Um, because I did, I fell in love. You know, I at the at the bistro we had you know we had Rhones, we had Bordeaux, but I fell in love with the Pinots, man. The Pinots just there's something about Pinot Noir that I just and I still do, even though I don't work with a lot of Pinot Noir now. Uh, I find it just so uh, cerebral. I mean, uh, it, it's definitely it's a subtle wine, 
it makes you pause, makes you think. It's not just a big in your face Syrah, you know? And, and not saying that Syrahs can't be complex, but there's so much fruit on the, on the, on the front palate that you oftentimes lose a lot of the, the more subtle nuances and, and complexity, uh, you know, where Pinot Noir, you've got very light fruit, delicate fruit. Even, even if it's a big Pinot, it's still light in comparison to, uh, to other varietals, you know? Um, and so it allows a lot of the, uh, the mid-palate uh, to, to play. Um, and so it, it makes you stop and think. Um, it's, it's also why I don't think that it will, you know, Oregon's never going to be Napa. It's not, unless climate change, you know, you know, allows us to plant Cab Sauv here, you know. But because the American palate, we uh, the American, the, the middle middle America, just Americans in general. I mean, look at what we drink. Go to the go to the convenience store. You've got big sugary sodas, you know, and and you know, big fruit, uh, you know. We're not about subtlety. Uh, you know, we are Americans, you know, it's big in your face, you know, uh, you know, uh, and so Pinot's, uh, Pinot's never going to be on top. It's never going to beat out Cab Sauv. It's never going to beat out Syrah because it, it is lighter. Uh, and, and it does, uh, it, it takes thought to actually enjoy it, I think, you know, uh, it, it takes a certain person to, to actually enjoy Pinot Noir. And that, that I mean, that kind of sounds arrogant, but but it's true, um, you know. It definitely is uh, is a beast of its own. So anyway, I I, I fell in love with the, with you know uh, the the Burgundian wines, even Chardonnay. I love Chardonnay too. Um, so yeah, I think that that was uh, that was something that, re that really attracted me, especially in in Oklahoma. I mean, we're, we weren't selling as many again. We weren't selling as many of the uh, the, the, the Pinots as we were uh, Bordeaux's and Rhones and stuff because you know you're you're in Oklahoma. It's meat and potatoes. You know, it's uh, it's big. You know, <laughs> you're right next to Texas. <laughs> you know? it's, it's a very different mentality. Um, I will say though that the uh, the restaurant that I worked at though it it, uh, it bordered on an area there's in Oklahoma City there's actually a city within Oklahoma City called Nichols Hills it's a city unto itself it's a it's a municipality a um, lot of money you know, a lot of money <laughs> doctors and and lawyers and oil people and stuff but they're well traveled you know uh, and so they they had the uh, the education they had, uh, the travel and the experience to appreciate uh, a French bistro in Oklahoma City. You know, so that, that's why it's been there for 35 years. <laughs> that and the, and the guys who own it, they're, uh, they definitely have a, uh, a personality that, you know, they're French. <laughs> um, but yeah, gosh, that was, a, that was a great experience. It really was. I, uh, I learned so much there. I was just back there, as a matter of fact, uh, in June. Uh, we had a wine dinner there, and uh, it was kind of a, 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 a get together with all of the people that had worked there. You know, a lot of friends and stuff like that. Because I worked there for nine years. Um, there's a guy that's working there. He's been there for 20 years now. You know, 
um, in the restaurant industry, that's rare. But uh, but there's uh, there there's there, it's family. You know, I know it sounds kind of cliche, but uh, uh, it, it was definitely family. It was so good to see everybody, and uh, you know, it was kind of an honor of, of everybody, but also uh, the brothers, since they you know they're never gonna have a dinner for themselves. You know, pat themselves on the back, and so that was nice. And we had a bunch of people that flew in from all over the country and stuff. And uh, now you've got like lawyers and you know a bunch of attorneys for some reason that came out of that restaurant. <laughs> I don't know why, but a lot of attorneys now. Um, but that was fun, and uh, uh, we had a, we had a good time. I brought a couple of cases of wine, and we had a big dinner and stuff. And that was that was a lot of fun. So there's there's still definitely a big connection there. I talked to I talked to those guys, you know, once a month at least, you know, uh, because they were so influential. Um, they they pushed me shoved me almost <laughs> get the heck out of here you don't need to be in Oklahoma anymore you know <laughs> get out there go do it um, but yeah they, uh, they 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 shaped me in a, and molded me in that in that regard as far as uh, wine education and they encouraged it um, and they taught me a lot too uh, yeah so that was uh, Oklahoma, uh, that really was that pivotal point. I mean, I could, I'd probably still be there if, uh, you know, uh, if not for that trip. Um, yeah, my boss, he, he was like, buddy, you just need to go. You need to get out there and just see it at least, you know. And it, it, it's really funny because um, I'd been wanting to come out. I uh, was actually uh, engaged with, uh, again, I'm a deadhead also, so I've, uh, you know, I've got this kind of hippie aspect, and so Oregon just fits naturally. It fits like a shoe. I mean, uh, but I was, uh, I was in contact with Ken Kesey uh, before he died, and uh, he was like, yeah, you should come out to the farm sometime and, uh, you know, come hang out. And uh, so they're down in Pleasant Hill, right? Um, and I was I was planning on taking a trip, and then you know, up and died on me. You know, it's like, God, oh, man, come on, really? <laughs> the audacity! <laughs> but so that never worked out. You know, I didn't. And so it was, it was a few years later, and I finally got out here. And yeah, like I said, it was it's when I came out here on that on that vacation, it was just like, ah, this is where I need to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it just felt right. It really did, and it still does. Uh, there, I've never. Other than maybe Hawaii, I guess I've never been in a place where it's just like, gosh, you know, I could, I could see just being here for the rest of my life, you know. I keep telling people that I'm progressively moving west, you know, Memphis, Oklahoma, Oregon, Hawaii is going to be the last stop, right? <laughs> Rest my bones there. <laughs> so you talk about your first harvest experience yeah. at Lane. Yeah. Talk yeah. about the. Tell me what you learned. Tell me what, tell me about what experiences you remember from that first harvest. I learned harvest is hard. It's long hours. Uh, not so much anymore. It used to be cold, <laughs> cold and wet. <laughs> you know, um, uh, what I learned. Um, you get one shot at it a year. That was another thing that Jesse. Uh, he was like, "Yeah, don't mess it up." You know, it's not like it's not like beer. It's not like liquor. You know, you, you have a bad batch, man. You know, you can dump it down the drain, you can make it again. Can't do that with wine, you know? Um, you know, uh, get one shot at it. And, and so that's, uh, that's special too. Uh, it, uh, you know, I knew that wine, knew that wine told a story of the vintage, right? Um, but I didn't understand how much that the vintage influenced it until I moved out here and did harvest. You know, I didn't understand how much the weather 
you know, affected it. Uh, cold, hot. It's so funny, uh, you know, being, I, I think in, in agriculture in general, uh, you can talk to farmers and they're like, oh yeah, 2017, you know, really hot, <laughs> you know, or whatever. And then it cooled off, you know, we had rains that came in right before harvest or whatever, depending upon what you're, you know, what you're into, uh, if it's wheat or, or whatever. But yeah, you, you, you talk to people in agriculture and they can tell you about the weather. They can tell you even about, you know, the non-growing season, you know, times. It's like, oh, we had a really, really cold winter that year. We had a lot of rain, a lot of snow or whatever, really dry winter or whatever, you know, because it does come back and, and influences the, uh, um, uh, the crop that you're dealing with and I think especially with wine um, at least as far as so we're not we're not selling the actual grapes themselves right but it's it's very close uh, to the, 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 the basic product. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's closer than any of the other, uh, you know, beverages that you're, that you're getting. Uh, you're going through brewing. Uh, it's very far away from, from grain and hops and, and, and barley, you know. Um, obviously, spirits are very different uh, than, than their, their, their base, you know, product. But wine is... You can still taste the grapes, mm -hmm. even even through the fermentation. You, you know, when you're tasting the grapes, when you're tasting different uh, varieties uh, in their raw form, you can still taste like how that wine tastes just to some regard. You know, um, uh, and, and I think that's very interesting. It's uh, it, it's very close to what that that base product is. Um, so yeah, that I think uh, getting back to your to your question. The, the 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 weather really was in climate was the thing that I uh, that I really learned a lot about. Also, you know, working up in Dundee, you know, obviously everybody's all about the soil there. You know, uh, yeah, it's ah, jory, 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 right? You know, <laughs> like oh, all these other all these other uh, you know AVAs, you know, they have good soil too. <laughs> but. Uh, and, and there is something special about that. I mean, you know, there really is. You, if you taste enough wine out of Dundee, you can you can even pick out particular vineyards. You know, if you taste enough of it. Um, you you interviewed Forrest Shod. Uh, you know, he worked at Sokol Blosser for a while, and uh, I've tasted so many of their wines, I can just totally blindly pick out their wines. <laughs> just to, you know, I could even tell you like, oh, that's <laughs> that particular block or whatever. You know. Um, uh, that's uh, that really is interesting about wine as well. How you can you know you can really pick out the uh, the place the terroir. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people you know kind of see that as BS, and I think the more we learn about it, though, um, we're finding that there really is truth to that. You know, um, if you if you talk to anybody who who drinks wine enough, they can they can tell you. I mean, you know, obviously master psalms can. Mm -hmm. You know, they can pick out. You know, not just uh, you know. Uh, the, the 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 varietal itself, uh, but you know, again, if they've tasted enough of those wines, they can pick out like oh, that's Chasson Montachet right there, you know, or whatever, you know, uh, or and, and you know, again, vintages. Uh, you know, if you if you taste enough of the wines, you can say ah, that's a cool vintage or that's a warm vintage. I might not know exactly what vintage that was, but it definitely is a cool vintage compared to uh, to a warm vintage because mm -hmm. they taste entirely different, you know. Um, so yeah, what else did I learn while I was working with Jesse? Um, oh gosh, uh, 
I think that was, I mean, the main thing. I mean, it was just, I mean, it was a lot of, uh, it was a lot of just basic work. I mean, I was just a harvest intern, you know? So uh, I, I wasn't, uh, you know, in the lab or anything like that doing that. I still hadn't gotten my hands into, uh, you know, uh, into pH and TA and stuff like that. or. You know, um, so it was, it was a lot of just basic, a lot of just basic work. I learned that I liked it though. I learned that uh, there's a good kind of tired that comes out of it, you know. Uh, there were times on that first vintage, I remember I'd come home and, and it was, because it, it's very compact there at Lang. A lot of it is estate fruit. I mean, you know, they do get fruit from other vineyards, but a lot of it is estate fruit. So it's just very, it's like once it's on, it's on, you know. Um, everything ripens right around the same time. And so we're a lot of late nights. There were many nights that we got out of there at one o'clock in the morning and had to show back up at seven. You know, and I get home. I'd crack open a beer, and I'd wake up in the morning on the couch, like half of the beer is still there. You know, <laughs> I didn't even didn't even get half of the beer down. I just crashed. You know, I was just I was tired. I don't think I, I had been that tired from working. Uh, you know, ever mm -hmm. uh, even working in restaurants. I mean, you know, on a busy night, you're just not not that tired. It's just on, and you're just constantly busy. Uh, but I love it. I, I've I've. Man, I look forward to it every year. I love harvest. I really do. There's just this edge to it. And, uh, it's like, ah, this is what we're, this is what we work for. <laughs> you know, we get this, we get this time. This is our time to, to do it, man. Um, yeah, that's uh, that's a lot of fun. I, uh, I, I did. That's what I learned. I learned that I really liked it because uh, it could have been, you know, it could have been one of those things where it's like, ah, it wasn't wasn't what I thought that it was going to be. You know, it wasn't all that it's cracked up to be because a lot of it is it's very monotonous. A lot of it is just a lot of repetitive, uh, a lot of repetitive work. Um, Winemaking in general is kind of that way. Um, you just, we were talking about bottling. You know, bottling is just boring. <laughs> it really is. But you got you have to get it done, right? Um, you know. Um, Pruning vines is boring. It really is. Winter pruning is just boring. Uh, you know, laying down canes and, and tying everything down. It's, and, and you know, the thing about vineyard work, you get finished with a row and you look up and you're like, oh my gosh, this vineyard is so big. <laughs> There's just more and more and more stuff. By the time you get finished tying down, it's like time to go sucker. You know, you've got to start back again and, and, and go do that. Especially in a, in a, you know, if it's just you and another person, like when Forrest and I, um, we planted about 10,000 vines up on his property, you know, and that was just us, you know. Um, and we had a little help from friends and stuff, but for a couple of years, it was just, you know, us up there doing, doing that work. And man, those are, those are uh, rainy and cold and it's got to get done though, you know? Um, uh, those are the times that I almost like didn't like what I was doing. <laughs> you know, it's like, maybe I didn't choose the right path. <laughs> Go back to working in restaurants, you know, a heck of a lot easier. Um, but it's rewarding again. Like I said, there's a good kind of tired that you get out of it. You know, uh, you feel you feel good. You know, it's like, ah, oh, you've actually put in a, a good day's work. Mm -hmm. uh, something to be said about that. An honest day's work. <laughs> so you mentioned that, that after laying, you were at Guinness Feast but on, the, yeah. on, the, on the hospitality side. So tell me about, tell me about that and then kind of what comes next. So, uh, yeah, so they had a restaurant at the time. We don't have a, a restaurant any longer. So I worked there, uh, you know, on the weekends in the restaurant. And then during the week, I uh, worked a couple of days uh, a week uh, in the tasting room. And that got my feet wet in that, you know, in that regard of just selling wine, um, you know. Uh, and it's a different, I mean, it's very similar, but it's a different beast as well because you're just talking about wine. Pardon me. So you, you actually, you know, you have to really know a lot about wine to keep people engaged, you know. And it's not like, 
it's not like waiting tables where it's like, you know, you drop off the food and they don't necessarily want you there, you know? You don't want your servers hanging around, you know? But when you're working um, at a, in, a, in a tasting room, you know, at a bar, uh, tasting room bar or whatever, people are there to talk about the wine specifically. They want to engage with you. And so you have to, you know, you have to, to have a personality as well. You're selling yourself as much as you're selling the wine, mm -hmm. you know? Um, at least half of it. That's that's what I, another thing that I've learned, you know, through the years is uh, is that people like the stories. You know, they want to hear about the stories, especially, you know, if they're traveling from somewhere else. You know, it's like ah, oh, we flew in from Michigan. You know, and you know, I've never been out to wine country before. You know, so, you know, it's it's interesting. Uh, you you definitely have to. You have to know a lot about a lot of different things. You know, um, not just the wine but you know, to keep people engaged. Because you don't necessarily want to go too technical on them either, unless they want to go that route. But you don't want their eyes to roll back in their head, you know, and go, oh my God, this guy's never going to stop talking about, you know, like, do they care about pH? I mean, do they really care about TA? I mean, do they even know what that is? You know? Um, yeah, it's so funny because you do go, you go to some places um, and it's almost like they're, they're reading a script, mm -hmm. you know? Um, it's like, this is our da-da-da-da-da, this comes from this side, da-da-da-da, it's just right down the hill, blah-blah-blah-blah, you know? And you can tell that they, they say the same thing to every person that comes in. You know? And some places want it that way. They want it standard, you know, that way people know what they're getting, you know, every time that they go there. But to me, that's just kind of boring, you know? It, there's no personality there. Um, uh, and so that was the thing that I learned also is that you've, you've definitely got to engage people a little more than you do in the restaurant industry, you know, working in, uh, in a tasting room. Um, it, it's a different beast in that regard. Mm -hmm. um, but it's fun. I, I, I really enjoy it a lot. I've, uh, I've met a lot of really interesting people, you know, through that. Um, it, uh, and, and I've learned a, a lot from people, not just about wine, but all sorts of, of different aspects. Mm -hmm. You find out a lot about people, uh, especially after they get a couple of glasses of wine in them, you know, it loosens the tongue, as they say. <laughs> you know, sometimes you things you don't want to know. <laughs> but um, again, that, that kind of goes back to that communal aspect of it. You know, uh, wine is very different in that regard. It, uh, you know, uh, it, it's it's a good conversation uh, beverage. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you think about it. You know, there are you know great philosophical conversations that have come out of you know just sitting around having a glass of wine. You know, uh, I think much more so than uh, than spirits and stuff mm -hmm. that can can lead to some yeah you know, <laughs> some not so good conversations. I think, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so different different beast in that. Um, as far as working in the tasting room, um, I, I, I've learned. You, you, like I said, you have to. You have to learn a lot about the wine, though. You have to know a lot more about the wine um, because people expect you to know it. And and I think if you're going to do it well, um, you you want to 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 seem knowledgeable at least, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and not like you're just BSing people or not. Again, I think like. Uh, like I was saying that um, you're not uh, just saying the same thing. You know, you can tell that some of those places you go to, and, and it might have great wines, but it's like, gosh, you know, it, it just wasn't very personable, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. um, and 
uh, there's a big uh, there, there's a big aspect of that, especially I think now with, you know, I mean, gosh, we've got what over 700, 800 wineries in the in the state now. You know, everybody's got a tasting room. You know, several tasting rooms, some of them. Um, and so, what you know, what separates you from everybody else? You know, what makes you different? Mm -hmm. um, and that's where you know, kind of working at Canis Feast, that was one of the things that I've found uh, because we do focus on big, warm climate varietals. Um, uh, you, you, we're an island in a sea of Pinot, you know, <laughs> and so people go to us for, you know, for something different. Um, like I said, it's very ironic because I moved out here you know, specifically for Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. <laughs> and, you know, I'm not working with it. I, I mean, very little. We do a little bit of Pinot Noir um, and some Chardonnay that goes into a white blend that we do. But uh, but I've, I, I've actually enjoyed it a lot more than I thought that I would, you know. Um, uh, it's, it's definitely not a disappointment I'm not, that I'm not working at a Pinot house, you know. Um, I think it's, it's, it's actually, it's fun. It's a lot more fun. Um, like I said, you know, there's nowhere else in the valley that I could work with 16, 18 different varietals and, and done well. It's not an afterthought at Canis Feast because a lot of places it's like, okay, yeah, we focus on Pinot, but we also do a Syrah, mm -hmm. you know, or whatever. This, this is our focus. This is what we do. And um, not patting myself on the back, but we do it well. You know, um, I could stand behind all of those wines and be very proud of, of, of selling those wines to people. Um, and, and the thing about it is every variety is different. They're like kids, you know, they really are. They're, they're, some kids are really good. You don't have to do anything with them, you know. Like Sangiovese is like that. Sangiovese is a great kid, you know. You don't even have to, you know, you barely have to do anything to it. And then you've got other varieties like Syrah where you constantly have to go, hey, stop that, stop that, stop that, you know. Going reductive on me again, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting to, to find the, the personalities mm -hmm. of all the different varieties. Um, and, and working with a lot of different yeast strains. With Patrick, he's a very uh, analytical person. Patrick Taylor is the head winemaker there. Um, so he graduated from, uh, from Oregon State. You interviewed him a, a few weeks ago, um, you know, uh, with uh, the uh, food and beverage sciences. And so um, he, uh, you talk about uh, a guy who is very analytical. He's very geeky uh, in that regard, but in a good way, you know, um, you know, He's definitely one of those people where math and science obviously just came very natural to him, and 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 he uses it. He uses it very well, um, not overly manipulative, but uh, you know, working enough to, to to really coax out like what that what that variety can do, you know, uh, while while still representing what it is, you know, um, and not not overly playing with it. Um, but uh, yeah, I've learned a lot working there, you know, in the production side of things uh, with that. Uh, it's, it's just been, what a great education. Uh, you know, I could have paid, you know, $70,000 or whatever, you know, and still not gotten the, uh, the, the education that I've, that I've had working with him. It's just been amazing. It really has been. I could not ask for, you know, to, to work with a, a better person. Uh, so I've been there since 2009 uh, in different capacities. I moved into the assistant winemaker position, so kind of progressing like what you were asking. is kind of progressing out of the tasting room. I worked every harvest there since 2010. Um, uh, and then um, in 2016, I moved into the assistant winemaker position there. And uh, uh, it was kind of a natural fit. Our old assistant winemaker, he went on to be a head winemaker at another winery. 
uh, great guy, Dan Dury. He's over at Lady Hill. I don't know if you've uh, chatted with him or not, but uh, uh, super, super great guy. Um, and so uh, everybody was like, hey, you know, what about Jason? Move Jason in that position because he already knows he knows the vineyards, he knows the growers, he knows the fruit, he knows our, our system. It's just, you know, it's like a no-brainer. Why, you know, why not? So, uh, yeah, and Patrick and I, uh, we've, we've had a great relationship ever since then. I mean, from the get-go, I mean, it was, uh, it was just like, wow, yeah, the, the cogs just fit together, you know, and, just, and that, that machine just started working really nicely. It was very smooth, uh, good transition, you know. Uh, so yeah, that was uh, kind of that progression out of the tasting room and into uh, into the pr production side of things. Um, in between that time, um, I had the uh, the winery of Forest, and that was started in uh, 2011. So um, I live here in McMinnville, uh, at the corner of 12th and Yamhill. Have a basement in my house, so Forest has the vineyard right, and we were working on that already, planting vines and stuff like that. And it was like, well. Let's do a let's do a winery in the basement, yeah. Let's do a, a, a legit winery, not just you know. And uh, so that was pretty crazy. Uh, that was an experience. Uh, wow, that a side of the wine industry that you know a lot of people don't get to see. Uh, actually, establishing a winery and what you have to do, all of the the federal hoops that you have to jump through, the the state hoops, the the local stuff, and especially trying to do it in a residence. It hadn't been done before in Yamhill County. And they didn't know how to deal with it. <laughs> they had no idea. It's like, so first of all, we have to split your structure up. So, you know, upstairs, uh, you know, ground floor and upstairs, that's residence. This is now a commercial space. And so it had to split up the, uh, you know, the property itself had to be split up. Um, so Forrest and I worked on... Uh, uh, a lot of the because uh, the, it, it was an unfinished basement, so uh, we had to you know put up sheetrock and you know lights and you know all this stuff you know uh, we didn't do the wiring ourselves but uh, but we put up a lot of stuff ourselves uh, so that was uh, an experience talking about going back to what Jesse Lane was talking about <laughs> you know you have to be a carpenter you have to be a mechanic and electrician absolutely you know uh, and with that you had to be uh, otherwise we would have we would have had to you know pay a bunch more money than we did and we already were spending a lot of money because converting the the basement so once you get into that you have the department of agriculture that comes in because you're now a food processing facility right um so you know uh you've got and especially in a basement you know it's very small you don't have like commercial drains you know and so we had to put in a whole new drain system and everything for that and a sump pump and uh then all of a sudden you get the fire inspector that comes in, and so we had to put in a whole sprinkler system in the basement. And I mean, it was it was oh, it was crazy. We've got we've got fire poles on every every door on the on the on the ground floor, <laughs> like a school or something, you know. And, and it's an old house, so it was built in 1927, so it's all plaster and lath, right? Um, and so uh, we weren't going to be able to wire all of that stuff. I mean, that would cost way too much. So we had we found like a wire system that we put in uh, for, for all of that so the uh, it's all all of this wireless system like this the whole sprinkler system and everything we've got you know big strobe alarms and stuff I mean it's like <laughs> my wife's like we're never gonna be able to sell this house <laughs> unless you've got like a pyromaniac or something like that like, do you have a pyro for a kid there we go this is your house right here <laughs> put them in the basement never get a bird down
But uh, boy, yeah, you learn, I learned more about the Oregon Specialty Structural Code <laughs> than I ever thought that I would. Uh, they brought a guy out of retirement to actually work with us on this. This guy, Bob, he worked for the uh, city planning department. He was retired. And uh, they just, again, like I said, they just didn't know what to, what to do with this. It was like, we want you to do it. You know, they were encouraging, but it's like, but we still want to be within the law. And, you know, we don't want anything to come back in, you know, several years and, and, and bite everybody. Um, and so, yeah, Bob, uh, Bob came out of retirement for us, and he was a, he was a good guy. He really was. There were many nights that I, uh, I would message him or call him, you know, and, hey, what about this? Look at this, uh, this clause here, you know? I think we can get around having to put an elevator in the house, <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because the, uh, the whole, uh, you know, disabilities aspect, uh, but we weren't open to the public, so that was, uh, you know, that was the thing. Uh, so we didn't have a tasting room or anything like that. Nobody could come in and taste, so we, uh, we got around all of that. And also, one of the ways that we got around that was because uh, it was grandfathered in because the house is so old. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we, but yeah, there were a lot of things where it was like, uh, I don't know if this is going to work or not. I don't know if you, you get caught up on this one little, this one little law. You know, and it's like, gosh, how are we going to work around that? And so you're just reading constantly, you know, and looking for clauses and, and how to get around it, you know. Um, but yeah, <laughs> that was fun. Tell so me about the other part of it, the sort of designing, designing the, the, the naming, designing, and, and, and deciding what kind of wines you wanted to make. Well, um, so uh, Forrest and I, uh, you know, had, had been planting vines up there. So again, um, we didn't have we didn't have money to go out and buy rootstock and stuff like that. So we were we were just taking cuttings uh, from from winter cuttings uh, from their prunings and stuff from different vineyards. But with that, we got to select uh, exactly what we wanted, you know. Uh, but it was self-rooted, so you're always having you have that phylloxera, you know, aspect. Um, but we wanted we started out. Uh, wanting a, like a heritage type uh, vineyard site. Um, so uh, on his site, there are no Dijon Pinot Noir clones at all uh, on that site. Uh, we had uh, Pomard, uh, Vadensville 1A and 2A, uh, which uh, 1A, not, I mean, there's only like four, four vineyards in the, in the valley that have uh, Vadensville 1A. Um, we had uh, Pinot Duat, which is uh, is a Pinot Noir clone. Uh, it's called Duat because uh, it's upright. Uh, you don't have to you don't have to uh, work with it as, as much as you do a lot of the other Pinot Noir clones. Um, they actually uh, thought it was Gamay at one point when I think. Uh, it was maybe Gallo that brought that in or something like that. I can't remember who it was in California that brought that in originally. Uh, we, we had found that. I forget where we got that from. It may have been like at Sokol Blosser, I think. Uh, and they ended up tearing those vines out, you know. Because um, it really is, uh, it's very light. Um, that's why a lot of people just didn't like it. It was very, it, it, even for Pinot Noir, it's very light. Uh, I was talking to, to Randall Graham, uh, you know, down in, uh, in California. I was asking him about it because, uh, you know, he originally started working with Pinot Noir before he got into the Rhone varietals down there. Um, I was asking him about it. I was like, have you ever heard of this? He goes, oh, the bastard, the bastard clone <laughs> is what he called it. <laughs> it was like, nobody wants that stuff. But we had some of that. It's, I, I like it. I, I don't mind it. Um, we had uh, Pinot Meunier. Uh, that we, we, we planted out there as well, which Forrest does as a still wine, which is very unusual. You know, you see that going into sparkling wines a lot, but you don't see a lot of still red Pinot Meunier out there. That's a fun one to work with. I, I really like that grape a lot too. Um, yeah, so uh, 
gosh, what else did we have out there? Vainsville, Pomard, uh, had some, uh, some of the David Lett uh, cuttings uh, that, uh, that they were giving away at his funeral or at the ceremony, uh, the memorial service that they had, they were giving away cuttings and stuff. And so Forrest got a couple of those and, uh, and then we, uh, we propagated off of those vines uh, and did a couple of rows of just old Lett stuff, uh, which was kind of fun. Um, but yeah, so um, getting into uh, the creation of all that and why we, why we wanted to do what we wanted to do, that kind of goes back to we wanted to honor the, um, the guys that started it all. These were the clones that they had. That's what they had available. Everything that they brought up from UC Davis, that's all they had. You know, it was all UCD cuttings, you know, that they brought from and, and planted in those original nurseries and stuff. Uh, you know, Let planted that nursery down in Corvallis as uh, basically in a drainage ditch, uh, you know, uh, uh, at a nursery. Um, Corey, you know, planted up, uh, you know, just outside of um, Forest Grove up there. Um, so yeah, those were the that's those were the original guys, and that's what they had. And so it was kind of a it was kind of a heritage uh, idea. It was we wanted to honor that uh, you know that that whole thing. Uh, I think also we Forrest and I talked about this while we were planting because we were seeing it's like you know with climate change happening, everybody's planting these these earlier ripening Dijon clones, and it's like maybe you want something that's going to be a little bit later ripening, you know, uh, especially the way things are going. Um, and uh, so there was uh, there was a, a, a a logical aspect, not just a passionate aspect, there was a logical aspect to, to what we were doing as well. Um, we were kind of learning uh, definitely on the, uh, on the fly though. Uh, yeah, uh, never planted a nursery before. And again, like, you know, Forrest grew up farming, and so his dad uh, planted vines out in the, there on the farm in the 80s. Uh, so he grew up with that. Me, I, I moved out here. And I, totally green about, you know, about working in, in a vineyard and stuff. Uh, so that was a big education process. Again, learning on the, uh, on the job, learning on the fly. Um, but it did come kind of, um, you know, in, intuitively. Uh, it, it made sense. Uh, yeah. If you think about it, if you stop and think about, like, why the vine's doing this or why it wants this, you know, it's like, oh, okay, that makes sense. That's, that's, that's logical. Um, yeah, so what else did we plant up there? We planted, uh, we did plant some Dijon Chardonnay up there uh, uh, just uh, to, have, uh, to have some Chardonnay. Um, and so that came from uh, David Adelsheim's uh, vineyard. Um, uh, their uh, um, Boulder Bluff site, I think is what they call it. Uh, it was when Chad Vargas was their vineyard manager over there. Uh, we talked with Chad and it was like, hey, we're like, because we, we had this, this one area that uh, oh, it was, we called it the bitch block. It was, it was a bitch to work. It was just rocky, rocky, rocky. Uh, it was just, it was a pain. It, putting in posts there was just, it was a nightmare. Uh, and so we were talking to Chad and uh, it's like, hey, do you have anything that, uh, and it's kind of shaded out. Um, and so, uh, do you have anything that, that, would, that would work there? He's like, yeah, we've got this, uh, this Dijon 548 uh, Chardonnay clone. Loose clusters, you know, so, uh, you know, uh, it, 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 it likes a little bit more shade and it doesn't have the propensity to, to mildew as, as much as, because Chardonnay is really tight clusters and stuff, you know, um, and will just mildew on you like crazy. Uh, and so he was like, yeah, try, try that. And, we, and we've got it in this rocky area and it seems to really like it there. And so I was like, okay, cool, that, that makes sense. You know? Again, that was kind of, uh, you know, it was logical the way we went about things and where we, where we got our cuttings and our vines and stuff. Uh, 
That was fun. That was a good time. That really was. A lot of work, but it was fun. It was a great educational experience. Uh, and then creating a, creating a label, too, was a lot of fun, too. Coming up with a name. That's like the hardest thing. That, that's like, that really is the hardest thing. It's like, so what are you going to call it, right? You know? Is it going to be Shod Brumley, or is it going to, you know, I mean, what, what do you, you know? Uh, and so we... We were sitting there. I remember we were sitting at his house and we were flipping through the dictionary because we were both deadheads. And so that was actually how like the Grateful Dead came up with their name, right? Uh, sitting at Phil Lesh's house and they flipped through and there was this, you know, kind of thing about the Grateful Dead. It was a story, it was a Nordic story about, you know. And so uh, I was like, ah, you know, it worked for them, man. We can just, you know, <laughs> we could do it that way. So we're flipping through the dictionary and going, nah, nah, maybe, uh, you know. Wait, uh, get to X, right? No, nobody has an X name. <laughs> nobody has an X name. <laughs> like, what are you going to call it? Xylophone? <laughs> I mean, and, uh, it was like xylem, and it's like, ah, yes. It was like, ah, that's, you know, vascular structure of the plant right there. I mean, um, and it was like, that just made sense. It's like xylem wines, heck yeah, you know? Um, let's, let's call it that. So we always joked about it. it's like, oh, we're gonna have a sister label called Floem, <laughs> yeah. Xylem and Floem, right? But uh, it really was a great, uh, great time, you know, coming up with the name and, and designing the label. That was, and 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 being such a small, obviously, it's just us, it's just me and him, and, and so you have to do everything yourself. And uh, so the label design, the you know, the the logo or the look of it, the, the font, you know, down to that, you know, it's like you know, all of that stuff. What a great experience that was. Uh, good learning experience. And so even if I never do it again, I, I've at least done it and I've got that knowledge. You know, uh, you know, again, another one of those things that I can put in my toolbox and you know, at least have it uh, if, uh, if need be. And you've got the basement. <laughs> so I still have the basement. I do. I don't know that I'd want to work in the basement again. That was tough. That was hard. Uh, it really was. You're limited by, you know, a lot of things, but space especially. That was one of the things is like, you know, you can only stack the barrels like, you know, so high. Uh, and you can only put so many barrels down there. You're really limited as far as tank space. We never, that was the problem with the basement because it's whatever can get through the door, right? Mm -hmm. You know? And so... It's really hard to get good ferments out of small vessels, you know? You just never, you don't have the mass and you can't build up enough heat to really get a good ferment going. That's why home winemakers rarely have really good wine. It really is. Uh, it, it's because they just, even if they're doing everything right, you just can't get uh, the ferments, uh, you know, done well. Um, and that's one of the things that we learned. It was, uh, that was, uh, you have to get really creative with it. Um, you know, uh, keeping keeping heat on on those ferments because uh, they'll cool off on you. And a lot of times, you, they'll they'll they won't finish, mm -hmm. and so you know you'll end up with uh, with residual sugar in your in your ferments and stuff, which <laughs> you definitely don't want, especially if you're if you're trying to do it on a commercial <laughs> commercial scale. You know, uh, yeah, you don't want to be selling sweet pinot out there. But yeah, so that was that was there. there a lot of limitations in in doing that. Yeah. Could, you could do other things. I thought about putting a sound studio in there, actually. <laughs> That'd be kind of fun. Although I'm not musically inclined at all. <laughs> not at all. So with with your work at Canis Feast, obviously yeah. you mentioned kind of how it has how it has evolved, how your role has evolved. Yeah. Tell me about that. Tell me about sort of the the evolution of the brand, the evolution of, of your work under it as as you've been there, and what it, what it kind of looks like now. Sure. Uh, you know, when I started working there, um, 
The wines were very austere. Patrick had uh, a very different way of making wines than what we do now. Um, you know, he came from the food sciences aspect, and so he's looking at microbial growth is what he's, he doesn't want, right? So high acids, that's really what he was like. And, and also palate-wise, you know, it was what he liked at the time. Uh, you know, he's really, really nice uh, ripping acids, uh, good food wines, very food-friendly. Um, but it's one of those things where a lot of times to to even approach those wines you have to lay them down for five six years you know and the American public they're not big selling people I mean really not they're consumers you know uh, the average Joe is is going to the wine shop or grocery store wherever they're getting their wine and it's for that night or for the next night, you know, or for that week, you know. They're not going to, to Safeway and buying something to put in their cellar, you know. And especially people that live outside of wine growing regions, you know, that don't live in California, Oregon, or Washington, or, you know, Texas or New York maybe. But uh, the average person, uh, they don't, they don't know about you know this particular vintage. Oh, it's a cool vintage. Lay it down for a while, you know. Um, and, and they don't care. They don't care about that. They want something that's like, ah, I'm going to buy that and it's going to be good. You know, uh, I could drink it right now. Um, and if it's if it's one of those things where you've got a lot of vintage variants for the for the average American consumer, uh, if if it's very different, if it's like, oh, this was a warm vintage and it's very different than the cool vintage. They might have liked that warm vintage, but then they buy it again, and they're like, gosh, what happened? And then they 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 see it as a flaw. It's like, wow, they used to make really good wines, you know? And it's like, especially with Pinot, because Pinot, it really represents, you know, vintage, you know, a lot more so than, uh, than some of your other varieties. Um, yeah, so um, the, the winemaking has shifted, though. We still make ageable wines, but they're definitely, the acids aren't as ripping. Um, we, we harvest a little bit later, um, and, and looking for a little more flavor development as well, uh, the, uh, the physiological development, uh, looking for, or, for uh, more phenols. Um, so that, that aspect has changed, since, especially since I took over with Patrick. Um, and I think a lot of that also has to do with coming from the, the retail side of things and knowing what the customers want, you know, um, and what you, you hear from the customers, what they don't like. Because mm -hmm. uh, people will definitely let you know, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, don't like that vintage as much as that other vintage. And like, okay, so I see what you liked about that vintage. And so there are some things, even if you do have a cool vintage, there are things that you can do to, to, to shift that wine in, at least into um, higher pH, for example. You know, you can harvest it later. Um, you know, you can, you can do different things to the wines and not over, over manipulate the wines, um, but still, still have them to where they, they're, they're still, you know, they still have varietal typicity. They still represent what that is. It's not trying to make it into something that it's not, but, uh, but can at least shift it into where it's consumer friendly. That's, that's where, you know, we've kind of shifted things in that regard. Um, Walking that tightrope, where you still want ageable wines, you still want people to be able to lay them down if they if they want to, but also to be able to open it tonight and be very happy with it as well, and not not say, ah, oh, gosh, you know, open that too early. Maybe maybe should you know lay that down for a little while longer. Um, 
so that is a tightrope that you're that you're walking. And again, you know, where you don't want to over over manipulate it, you don't want it to to be big tank wine, you know, uh, where you're you're throwing in a bunch of stuff and you know it doesn't it doesn't look anything like you know like it did you know before. Um, so there is that that balance, uh, you know. That's what's interesting about winemaking. I think also is how the the different the different aspects that you can you can go through with it. You can be totally hands off, you know, let the ferments do what they want to do. You can go native yeast, native, you know, malolactic. Uh, or you can go to the opposite direction, where, like I said, like big tank wines, you know, and you know, not going to diss any 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 wineries or anything like that. But you know, where it never sees a barrel, you know, you're throwing in, you know, oak staves or oak adjuncts and stuff like that to to to, to feign, you know, uh, the idea that it that it saw a barrel, <laughs> you know, and then and then you've got you know the in betweens, you know, and there's and there's a lot that you can do with uh, in in those areas. And still be true to uh, be true to the to the grape, you know, uh, and true to the process. So that's where we've kind of uh, kind of worked in in, in that way, uh, just trying to to, to make m more consumer friendly, I guess, wines, mm -hmm. uh, where it's not so austere, you know, where it, it's. I still want that cerebral aspect, you know. I still want people to pause and think, like, "Oh, wow, what's going on here?" But at the same time, I I like making those wines also that are like, "Hey, you don't have to think about it, you know. You can just have a glass of this and be really happy with it, you know. Um, you don't have to sit here and, and analyze it, you know. You can just drink it, you know, enjoy it. Everyday drink juice, you know. <laughs> I know that sounds bad, but but those are good. You need those wines too, you know. Uh, you need you need a I think everything has its place, uh, you know, like variety-wise especially. You know, you get a lot of people that are like, I don't like that. I don't like this. And it's like, well, you probably just haven't had, you know, that variety done the way that you might like it. I remember when I was working uh, when I was working at the bistro in Oklahoma, uh, there was a, I will never forget this, there was a lady, uh, she, uh, she came in one afternoon and she was waiting on a friend. And I said, oh, would you like a glass of wine while you're waiting? She's like, oh, that sounds great. I like a white wine, but I don't like Chardonnay. You know, she's one of those ABC people, anything but Chardonnay. Um, and I said, okay, well, I've got, I've got something. Uh, let, me, let me see. So I got her a taste. She tried it, and she was like, oh, my gosh, that's great. What is it? I said, it's 100% Chardonnay. <laughs> it's Puy Fuisse, though. It's, uh, it's not over-oaked, buttery, you know, Kendall Jackson Chardonnay. And I don't mean to diss Kendall Jackson, because it has its place. People, obviously, people like it. I mean, they sell a heck of a lot of it, you know. <laughs> but, but that's just what she didn't like, you know. Um, and uh, and she was like, oh my gosh! So uh, again, you know, opening people's eyes and, and educating them, uh, you know, not not letting them limit themselves, you know, uh, to uh, to saying I don't like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. like well, you just haven't had a style that you like, probably is what it is. And certainly there are you know some varieties where people like more than others, you know. But uh, yeah, that's. Uh, that's how things have shifted, though. Yeah, is uh, yeah. I think more than anything, um, and people have been responding to it. I mean, uh, we've actually had to cut our wine club off. Actually, you know, we're just not making enough wine right now, um, and we're very focused uh, with at the winery. We're very focused on. You know, vineyard selections, very specific vineyard sites, very different sites. Um, you know, Washington makes. I mean, they grow a lot of grapes. Um, and you know, it's it's almost like hydroponic farming out there. You know, uh, it's all sandy loam soils. You know, um, 
drip irrigation, obviously. I mean, if you're not irrigating out there, you're not growing anything but sage grass, you know. <laughs> so, uh, but so we do look for for these sites that are that are unique, you know, that have a certain you know a certain something that's going to make them stand out to where it's not just all Columbia Valley floor, you know, uh, you know. Capsov and, and Syrah and stuff. We, we look for those places that are going to have, that are going to provide, again, that, that the, even out there you still have terroir. You still have, you know, the, you know what, that, what that area is giving to it. Uh, so, um, yeah, that's kind of where we're going there. Well, I'm going to make you talk about 2020 now, so let's talk about 2020. <laughs> so I want to talk about, first of all, I'm talk about the, the, the smoke. The, the, let's talk about the COVID part of it first. <laughs> so I'm sort of curious about, uh, you know, a year and a half ago uh, when things started to shut down. Tell me about kind of initial sort of personal, professional reaction to that and adjustments you, you and, and Candace Feast had to make to, to kind of get through last year. Uh, obviously, first of all, just uh, concern for the staff uh, <laughs> and your friends, and they have families and stuff like that. And so, you know, all of a sudden, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're truly concerned about the health of people, you know, uh, it's something that you don't have to think about on a, you know, on a regular basis. And then the health of your, you know, of your customers. Um, uh, like everybody, you had to, I mean, we, we, we shut down for a little while, um, you know, until we could figure out uh, how we were going to deal with things. Um, and we didn't have, we still, we don't have a lot of indoor uh, seating capacity, so we were really limited. We do have a lot of outdoor seating capacity, but uh, it was all open. And so, you know, when you're talking about Oregon, you know, you've got one season, you know, in the summertime where you can, we can do outdoor seating in the open. But what do you do in, in the fall? What do you do in the winter? What do you do in the spring? You know, I mean, a lot of people had to deal with that, obviously, restaurants. You know, uh, you see the, the tents going up all over the place and stuff, you know. Uh, everybody had to, you have to be adaptive if you're going to survive, uh, and especially in something like that. Uh, it really caused people to, to rethink things. And so what we did, we had been, so we have, um, we have, like I said, a lot of outdoor seating capacity. Uh, we just didn't have anything covered. Um, so uh, last year, uh, during the summer, we built a, uh, a covered pergola, which you, you probably saw when we were out there. Um, and so that we, you know, that provided for, you know, at least a covered area where people aren't going to get wet, you know, uh, and, you know, we've got, you know, roll down shades. And so it gets kind of windy there. And so, again, you know, you're not getting wind blown rain on you. Um, bought a lot of heaters, <laughs> you know, bought a lot of heaters, uh, heater for every table. So, yeah, it, it was. Uh, uh, that's where the, the, the PPPs also really, really helped, you know, because, uh, you know, obviously some of that money has to go, you know, towards, uh, towards your payroll, but you're also allowed some of that money for, for, you know, for using it in the business itself for infrastructure or whatever. Um, and so that helped a lot, uh, you know, um, you know, the, the government really stepped up on that and did a good job, I thought, you know. Uh, it was is a very different time, obviously, right? Uh, you know, nobody had been through that. <laughs> Didn't know, you know, uh, 
you really have to, to to dance on that one. You have to stay on your toes on that. If you get you, you get caught on your heels, I mean, yeah. I really felt I felt for a lot of places that didn't have the, that ability. The smaller places, you know, small tasting rooms and stuff like that. I mean, see a lot of places that had to had to shutter, you know, um, and that hurts. Uh, you know, that's somebody's livelihood. You know, uh, not just the owners, but the employees, and then. Uh, yeah, you know, it's uh, that that sucks. I mean, it really does. Uh, it. it uh, I'm glad that we came through it. I mean, I think you know, uh, obviously, you know, some people got hurt by it, but I think a lot of people came out, you know, uh, better for it. We certainly did. I think uh, at the winery because it forced us to go to like table service rather than a, a bar service type of aspect. Um, I was reading something from one of the wineries down in California. Talbot's Creek, and they were talking about this, and it was the same thing that that we went through. Um, you know, table service. You know, going with carafes, letting people pour for themselves, trying to keep minimal contact, no open bottles with uh, with people. Um, and uh, it, it's actually provided for better service, mm -hmm. um, where it's not just like, here's your taste, you know, and then they run off and and go wherever, and then they come back up and get the next taste. Yeah, it's seated. It's it's you know come and take you know, and then you you get more of an opportunity to interact and engage with the people and to uh, to really share your story, share the story about the wine or whatever it is, or just you know have a nice casual conversation with them. So that that aspect I think is really that's benefited, and we're not going to go back to uh, to the bar service. We're going to continue with table service. Uh, people like it. Um, uh, all, all around. I mean, it's just it, we've we've had better responses, better sales from it, because uh, you actually get again more time to engage with the people, and it's not just like oh, come in and taste, and you know, um, you know, and and go sit outside and then come back in. Like I said, you know, and, and get your next taste. Uh, it's more of an experience, you know, uh, more of a wine tasting experience rather than just like oh, we're going to go out tasting wine and get our drink on, right? <laughs> you know, this is actually like oh, uh, you know, this is actually very nice this way um, so that that aspect we we've we've really benefited from uh, it, it's I think it I think for a lot of businesses it's made people re-examine uh, you know how they do things and to get better a lot of times you you get into this this mode of like oh this is the way we've done it you know you don't even think about it it's just you know you just go through the motions and this has caused people to take a pause and to say, okay, this is how we can we can you know we can do this. We can work around it, and maybe make the experience better for people, you know. Uh, and and everybody benefits from that, you know. So yeah, that's what the the people at Tablas Creek were talking about. Also, was like, yeah, I mean, it, they they had experienced the same thing. So so we know that it's not just isolated to, to us at Canis Feast. It's like you see it, you know, all around with uh, with with different places. And so uh, that's nice. I, I think you know the more that you can engage people and, and talk to them, uh, then it's not just like I said a a drinking experience. It's a it's an actual tasting experience. You know, I think a lot of people. You live in you live in the valley. A lot of times, you know, you go out on the weekends to go taste. You know, get a couple of places, and you know, but maybe you're not buying, you know, wines necessarily. It's just more for the tasting, you know, rather than the uh, the learning, the education, and the purchasing aspect. And that's what ultimately, at the end of the day, that's what keeps <laughs> our lights on is selling bottles of wine, and not just people coming in, you know, and paying the tasting fee. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not that's not what we want. Sure. So. <laughs>
And the other part of 2020, your initial yeah. reaction to 2020 was was smoke. So tell us tell us about Harvest last year. <laughs> yeah, my initial was the smoke. I forgot about COVID, right? <laughs> it was the smoke, the stupid smoke. Um, boy, that was uh, again, you know, right in the middle of all this COVID stuff. Then we've got all these fires going on, and boy, you remember? I mean, it was just. I mean, the sky was red for several days. I mean, it was just eerie, 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 and uh, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of smoke haze. Um, so. Again, you know, luckily for us, we don't do a lot of Pinot Noir. So, <laughs> you know, we we didn't even do a Pinot Noir last year. Uh, that, that was already planned before the smoke issues and stuff. Um, but we did one for a custom crush client, um, and uh, it's a vineyard that's over in Yamhill Carlton. And we were worried about it. We really were. Uh, it just uh, and it hung around for so long. That's one of the things with smoke is like you know how low the smoke is in the atmosphere, how close you are to the fires, and how long that smoke hangs around. You know, um, and so it just it kept kept on for days and days and days, and it seemed like it just would never go away. So we were really worried about it. Um, out in Washington, we, I mean, they had some smoke that was up there, but it was more high atmosphere because it was coming from here in Oregon. And so by that point, it had hit higher into the atmosphere. So we didn't get, we, we didn't notice any, uh, any issues with smoke from there. The, the stuff from Oregon, we, we uh, have tasted through it. Uh, we just bottled it, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, last week. Um, and we didn't see uh, we didn't see any issues. Um, we did get uh, lab analysis on it. Uh, so uh, ETS, uh, they we sent a sample down to St. Helena, and they uh, it did come back with some glycols and stuff like that. But they were below uh, the perceptive threshold as far as uh, you know. Um, so I think that a lot of people really lucked out, you know, with that. I know a lot of people didn't harvest at all, you know. Uh, you know, just took the crop insurance on it, and you know, it's like, wow, can you really afford to take a vintage off? Though is the thing. That's uh, yeah, that's rough. But uh, I mean, more power to you if you can, right? I guess uh, either that, or you've got a lot of inventory, and that you, know, you need to push that out too. Uh, but. Yeah, it, uh, boy, what, it was weird. I hope that it's, uh, you know, obviously, I mean, knock on wood, we haven't had to deal with that, you know, uh, as bad. Uh, there have been a couple of days where there have been some of the, some of the, the, the smoke, uh, you know, from the fires around, but uh, definitely not as bad as last year, at least so far. Um, we, uh, we, we did some, uh, some preventative measures, though. Uh, you know, we uh, worked with a product called Kytazan. Um, that uh, it's a fungal derivative, um, but you can also get it from shellfish and stuff, and it, uh, it's ionized. And so it acts, uh, you know, kind of how bentonite does, where uh, it will bind with, uh, with ionized particles. Um, it latches on to um, uh, some of the glycols and things like that, uh, and, and it'll flocculate out. And, um, so that actually helped. That was a nice, uh, nice preventative measure. We did it to everything just in case. Mm -hmm. um, and again, it's, a, it's natural, it's, uh, you know, and this is a fungal, uh, it's fungally derived, and so you don't have to worry about you know vegan aspects and things like that. You know, because if you were using a shellfish, obviously you'd have to worry about that and, and different allergies. And so, um, yeah, no uh, no issues with that. But uh, again, one of those things that uh, you know, it's another one of those tools that you have in your toolbox. You hope you don't have to use it, but you know, you at least have used it, and you kind of know what it does, and you know that. That at least we didn't we didn't notice any perceptible differences um, as far as flavor profile or anything like that. Um, so yeah, it, it definitely kept us on our toes, though, no doubt about it. That's the wine industry, though. I mean, that really is that's farming in, in general, but uh, wine wine especially. 
uh, you know, every vintage is just, there's, it seems like every vintage I learned something, <laughs> you know, that, that I hadn't dealt with before or hadn't thought about before. Um, there's always something going on. I almost wanted just a normal vintage. I don't know. I don't know what that would look like. <laughs> like can't we just have an easy one? How about that? <laughs> if it's not the heat, you know, it's the rains coming in right before. Welcome to Oregon, though, right? I mean, you know, the rains coming in right before harvest or whatever. Which we actually look like we might get some. Huh? <laughs> Got a little sprinkle on my drive-in today, so I, I don't nice, mind. Nice, I don't mind it. It's time for it. Yeah, I don't mind it. So tell me about, uh, look ahead for yourself in the future. What, what, what's, what's on the horizon for you? What are you looking ahead to? Uh, just continue on, you know, continue making wine, learning, continue learning, enjoying what I'm doing. I mean, in the minute that I stop enjoying it, I'll find something else to do, you know. Uh, I'm not afraid to, to do that. Uh, but so far, you know, I, it's, been a good, it's been a good move. Uh, you know, I definitely can't imagine going back to working in restaurants after this. I mean, uh, at least having somewhat normal hours, you know. I, I don't miss those late nights and stuff like that. So definitely not going to go into the restaurant industry again. <laughs> now, I, I, I like what I'm doing, um, you know. Uh, I don't have any plans of, uh, you know, jumping ship and going anywhere else or anything like that. Uh, I don't mind being the assistant winemaker, you know. I'll definitely take credit if things go well, and you know, if things go poorly, then I'll lay that on the head winemaker. <laughs> you know, that's a good thing about being the assistant. <laughs> At the end of the day, <laughs> but uh, no, it's uh, it's fine. I enjoy I enjoy the crew that I work with. Uh, you know. Um, we really are, I know it sounds cliche, but we really are a family. I mean, Patrick's been there since 2004. I've been there since 2009. Uh, we've got, you know, our uh, office management, you know, since 2011. Our taste room lead is since 2011. We've got two cellar guys that have been there since 2000. They've been there 21 years, both of them have, you know. Um, so uh, it, it's, it's, it's not BS when I say we are a family, because we really are. Um, and. Uh, so, yeah, I can't, I can't foresee doing anything different. I like it. You made reference to me in one of our conversations before the interview about Oklahoma. Yeah. And about that perhaps playing a role in, in your future. Is there, oh. is, there, is there anything there <laughs> about, you'd like to talk about? Uh, oh, oh, no, no. I mean, that, uh, that vineyard site, I still have it in mind. I think it would be a fun project, but uh, I... I don't foresee that as a reality, though. It's, it's, a, no, it's a novel idea. If, if, if somebody from Oklahoma wanted to invest the money in it and they said, hey, you know, we'll, we'll throw down the cash, uh, would you oversee this? I might, you know, but I'm not going to put in a lot of time and effort into it, you know. Again, like I said, there was a reason that I didn't do it. You know, I mean, you're going you're gonna to have all of that energy, same amount of energy, same cost, if not more. Uh, and you're going to, what, make mediocre wine at best? I mean, yeah. but if somebody wanted to do it, sure, I, I, I might look at it. I might think about it. They want to, if they want to be an idiot. <laughs> There's, a, you know, you get that, you get that a lot, you know, especially around here. People are like, oh, I have a couple of acres, you know. I was like, don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. Don't plant a vineyard. Do not. <laughs> it's a horrible idea. Uh, it's, it's, unless you're, Unless you either are totally retired and you have the time to do it and you've done it before, you know what you're getting into, or you're just going to let a vineyard management company take over and, and do it and you've got the money to do it, uh, then yeah. But if you're, if you're going to do it all yourself, 
even just a couple of acres, it's a lot of work. Putting in the infrastructure, all your trellising system, planting the vines, I mean, you know, weeding and, you know, uh, suckering and, you know, picking the fruit. Uh, it's hard. <laughs> it's, it's tough. And most of the time, those people, you know, they're, they're at a retirement age or something like that. Really? <laughs> Have fun with that. No, I don't, I don't foresee doing another vineyard. Definitely not. No. I'll be a consultant. Mm, yeah. That's the dream. I'll be a consultant. That's what I'll do. None of the responsibility. Well, we're going to talk to you in a minute uh, in a whole different, whole different light about oh, sort of geology and history right, of right. Oregon wine. But I'm curious, before we get to that, one last question for yes. you. Yes. But the industry in general, mm -hmm. what do you see as you look ahead for Oregon wine? <sighs> Good question. Um, a lot of grapes out there. <laughs> uh, and again, like I said, you know, before, I don't know that the American market, uh, Pinot's never going to be Capsov. It's never going to be Syrah in the American market. It's just not. Um, it's, it's a totally different beast. So I don't know if the market's saturated or not. I don't know. Um, probably pretty close. I mean, I know, in, well, California and Washington, I mean, they're talking about, you know, they need, you know, around 10% you know, uh, uh, decrease in the uh, in the vineyard in the vineyard acreage, and I don't know if Oregon's necessarily to that point, but we're probably at a pretty close to saturation point, I would imagine. Um, I, uh, it's still a healthy market, though, definitely. I don't think. I mean, we're not suffering by any means, um, but I think you're going to see. <sighs> Some of the smaller people probably getting purchased uh, by some of the bigger wineries that can afford it, or some of the, the you know some of the bigger groups. Um, a lot of that has to do also with you know a lot of people that are first generation. They have kids or they don't have kids. The kids don't want to get into it, you know. And so what do you do then? Yeah, I mean yeah, uh, it'll wear on you. The, the industry will definitely wear on you. It'll beat you down. It's tough. It's a, it, it's it's hard. But as far as the future goes, uh, wow, you know, um, I think the big thing that you're looking at is climate change. You know, how's that going to how's that going to shape uh, what's being planted here in the valley? Um, you already see people, you know, experiment around with some different things. Cab Franc, you'll see more people uh, doing some Cab Franc, uh, Nebbiolo, even, you know, um, you know. Um, if it continues on, you, know, you definitely will see some of those warmer climate varietals being planted out here, and they'll probably do well, you know have nice acid structure, nice complexity, they won't be, you know, overly jammy and, and you know. Uh, but, you know, we haven't had a truly cool vintage since 2011, so it's been a decade since we actually had a truly cool vintage. We've had, you know, we've had those, those vintages where it's been hot and then it rained or it cooled off right before harvest, but an actual truly cool vintage was 2011 was the last one that we actually really had. Um, and that, historically, I mean, obviously we don't have we don't have a lot of history growing grapes here. Uh, it's only been since 65. David Lett planted, you know, planted those vines in, in Curry. Um, but historically speaking, I mean, that's it's rare that you you have a whole decade where you haven't had cool, you know, cool weather. Uh, you know, it's been hot summers, and I don't see that I don't see that trend going anywhere but up. You know, unfortunately. 
Yeah. Uh, you'll see, I think that's something that you'll see a lot more people doing is putting in uh, drip irrigation, you know, here in the valley. Uh, I know a lot of the old, I mean, a lot of the newer vineyards have it just for when the, when the vines were young, you know, just to keep them from getting too stressed out. Uh, so they've got that option to turn the water on. A lot of the older vineyards don't have that infrastructure. And so, uh, you know, you, I think you might see some of the older vineyards actually considering uh, putting in uh, putting in some some irrigation aspects. Um, I know that a lot of people are kind of you know they like the dry the dry farming aspect of it. Which I mean, if you can if you can do it, great. But you don't want to overstress your vines. You definitely want the vines to to work. Uh, you know, um, so that they will go deeper. You know, as far as the root system, get more complexity. Um, but you don't want to overstress them. And I think especially we. If we get more years like this, I mean, where you're sitting in triple digits, you know, for several days, you know, the vines just shut down. You're risking sunburn. You know, um, you know, it will it will shift how we definitely how we uh, how we trellis things. Mm -hmm. um, it, it certainly will. We may shift from uh, you know from uh, you know vertical shoot positioning with with Pinot Noir and stuff like that. To maybe having a little more, a little more overhang, uh, you know, uh, maybe a single, single catch wire and letting the, uh, you know, letting the uh, the canes kind of uh, fall over, just to shade them a little bit more. Um, so we'll we'll see how that goes. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's worrisome in that regard. Definitely, climate change is definitely worrisome. Uh, agriculture in general, uh, you know, it, it, water. I mean, you look at they. I just saw today where you know Arizona is getting a lot of their water cut off because Colorado River is at the lowest point, you know, <laughs> that people know about. Mm -hmm. That's uh, that's scary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, because that provides uh, millions and millions of people a lot of water. California, for, for instance, you know, gets a lot of water from that. So we shall see about that. Yeah, I know that they what in Central Valley in California they uh, you know they've limited water you know for for a lot of farms and that's one of the biggest agricultural the biggest agricultural area in the United States. So you start hitting farmers down there with with water you know limitations, man, that affects the whole country. <laughs> you know, not just the wine industry. So absolutely, yeah, we'll see. Well, it's all the questions we have for, all right. for the interview part well, of this Well, thank portion. you so much. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, anything we didn't ask that we should have? Anything we didn't cover? No, I think we covered a lot, Derek. Yeah, we covered a lot. Well, thank you, you so much. Do you guys have any questions? Yeah, you guys have any questions? <laughs> all right. Well, I'm sure you get to see this all the time, so. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Appreciate your absolutely. time. Appreciate you take, telling us your story and you coming here, and uh, we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Basically, basically, once again, um, so 400 to 100 million years ago, Basically, what Oregon is the 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 line for the land mass itself. It's under the ocean, but the land mass of the North American plate kind of cuts across and a bisect across what is now Oregon. So up near the Idaho-Oregon border, all the way down to Gold Beach uh, is where that land mass kind of kind of bisects. But it's still all underwater itself. So the Pacific Ocean is still kind of going here, but the land is underneath the water there. Um, that's the North American plate. Uh, so around this time, 400 to 100 million years ago, you start having these little islands, the volcanic islands that are start popping up in the Pacific Ocean. These are called exotic terrains, and they're actually moving um, across the floor, the ocean floor. Um, and like I said uh, earlier, before, <laughs> if you were sitting at, if you were sitting here, 
at the Oregon-Idaho border, what is now the Oregon-Idaho border. Had a big telescope or something like that. Looking out into the Pacific Ocean, you'd see these little islands start popping up where the Blue Mountains are basically right now. Um, so that, those are the exotic terrains. Those are the first land masses that start coming in onto the North American plate and they start fusing themselves with all of this, uh, this magma and volcanic activity. Um, and they start fusing themselves to the edge of the, uh, the North American plate. So then around 165 to 130 million years ago, you have on here, you have these other little rock formations that start happening, and these are called batholiths and plutons. They are actually the first, first rock masses, the rock formations that happen in Oregon itself, that haven't moved in from somewhere else. They start happening and fusing themselves again to the, uh, to the North American plate and start popping up. So you have these little mountains that start happening out here also that are actually uh, originating from uh, the Oregon area. Um, so those are the batholiths and plutons. Then all of a sudden you get a lot of uh, sediments that start happening. Um, mud and, and a lot of flows, a lot of lava flows and stuff like this are happening. So this is happening about 130 million to 50 million years ago. And so this is where we actually get our first soils that are establishing themselves. Coastline's kind of slowly establishing itself over here, right? It starts spreading out. Then we start getting soil formations that are happening. And instead of having these little volcanic islands, you start getting more land mass, basically. And this is where you first get into actual plant material that starts happening uh, on, the, uh, on the land mass itself. And so below what will happen later with a lot of the lava flows, we actually have coal formations uh, because of these old, these old plants that, uh, that were living there, ferns and things like that. Um, so uh, you also have a lot of, because it is the ocean, you have a lot of, um, uh, a lot of fossilized uh, sea animals. That, uh, that are there, ammonites and things like that. And you can see that up at the John Day fossil beds that, uh, that, that uh, is exposed up there. A lot of that aspect is covered over by basalt that happens later on with a lot of the volcanic activity that happens. Um, so we don't see a lot of it, but it's there. It's below the, uh, the bedrock there. So uh, the Siletz terrain, so these are the last of the exotic ar arrivals of uh, and they start happening on what is now the coast here. This ultimately will make up the coast range, the, the base of the coast range. And that's fusing itself to the edge. At this point, uh, you basically have an, a fully established coastline that goes about right in there at this point. Um, some of this is still underwater. Um, and then, so that is about 60 million to 48 million years ago that happens there, so we've got 68 to 40. Sorry for my horrible handwriting. Um, so then um, these are, again, more like the Hawaiian Islands as well. Uh, these are the last of these exotic terrains that are coming in from the Pacific Ocean and fusing themselves, again, to the, uh, to the North American plate that's there. So a uh, lot of tropical volcanoes. So this was actually uh, during the period about 52 million to 6 million years ago. Oregon was actually a tropical area. 
Um, it uh, was very, very hot here. It was very warm. Um, and so got a lot of life that starts happening here. A lot of plant life, a lot of animal life. And again, this is where you get a lot of fossilized material that happens, like the John Day fossil beds and things like that that establish out here. Um, it is more tropical here uh, than uh, like a temperate climate like it is now. Um, a lot of people don't realize we go through ice ages and come out of ice ages many, many times on this planet. It's called precession. Uh, a lot of people know that the Earth is tilted on its axis. What they don't realize is like a top, if it's off of its axis like that, if you spin a top and it's just slightly off, it starts wobbling. It'll go back and forth as it's spinning. That's what the planet does. And that's why we go into these ice ages and come out of these ice ages. A lot of climate deniers actually say, see, <laughs> we're constantly doing. What we should be doing, though, is rather than getting warmer, we should be going into the next ice age, actually. So that's one of the ways that we know <laughs> that, that we're having an influence on climate. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, so uh, you start getting the establishments of these volcanoes that start here, start establishing themselves. They'll eventually establish the Cascade Range. You know? few million years. The Cascade Range is actually relatively young as far as geological time goes, uh, but that's the very, very beginning of the early volcanoes that, that really start just ripping out um, a lot of activity going on. So you've got this shift where the, the, the North American Plate and the Pacific Plate are really just fighting against one another. So that's why you have a lot of this violent activity that's going on. Uh, the Coast Range starts getting established here, so you're basically at this point is about 50 million years ago to present day, right? So we're still constantly moving, but this has established basically all of your western coast range at this point. Uh, you start getting a lot of volcanic activity out here that, st that establishes the coast range, um, and you also have uh, activity that's really kind of starting around this time out in this area as well. A lot of volcanic activity that starts happening out here. And then we get into uh, some really violent coast range volcanic activity up in the northwest right around this time as well. So that starts happening up here. If you go out to uh, like Haystack Rock and stuff like that starts getting formed at this point. Uh, those are all, you know, uh, that's all basalt that's happening because of these volcanoes that are, that are happening. Um, Columbia River basalt starts happening about 17 million to 6 million years ago. So this is caused by the Yellowstone hotspot. And you may have heard about the volcano, that's uh, the cone volcano that's in Yellowstone. Uh, so it is, it's huge, it's violent. And so it starts spewing out all of this lava. And it's, it's not just one, one volcano, it's a series that goes through. Uh, it's all of these fissures that magma is just coming up and it covers, I mean, just immense amounts. Washington, uh, what's now Washington and Oregon just gets covered. Uh, and this is what establishes the Columbia River Gorge. And so that starts right in through here, right? And goes on the Washington side. It's so much of this basalto and so fast. It's just getting layered and layered and layered and layered on top of one another. And you can go out through the gorge and actually see it's a specific type of basalt that happens in the Columbia Gorge. And it's these little columns. And you'll see it uh, like around uh, where uh, the falls are and stuff like that. Uh, you can see this, uh, and, and it's just stacked on top of one another. You see how thick, I mean, this volcanic activity was. It's just crazy. It is the biggest volcanic 
activity that we know of that ever happened on this planet. It, it was so fast and so furious and it just kept happening. And, and 17 to 6 million years is not very long, geologically speaking. And it was, it was immense and it just covered, not just up here, it covered down here also. So you get a lot of, uh, a lot of basalt that's really coming through. And this establishes basically what our bedrock is here in, in Oregon. Uh, so, and it just spews out. And uh, let's see, um, also, because a lot of these places, it was happening so fast and so heavily, a lot of these places started collapsing. And that's actually what creates the gorge, is it can't handle all of the weight of this basalt, and there's a slight little fissure that's there, and it collapses in on itself and creates the gorge. Uh, it also is what creates uh, Silver Falls, so over near Salem, uh, you know, around that area. That's what created that whole area that just collapsed in on itself because of all of that, uh, that basalt that couldn't handle the weight, and these slight little fissures just open up. So a lot of people don't realize <clears throat> that before the floods, the gorge was there, it was established. And that's what one of the things that actually causes the floods to happen the way that they do is because the gorge was already established. So moving on, got a lot of volcanic activity that's happening out here after the Yellowstone hotspot happens. That's about 15 million to two million years ago. So this is all happening around the same time. It's just immense amounts of volcanic activity. Like I said, we just, we don't even know on this planet anywhere else that has had this much volcanic activity except for the Pacific Northwest. So uh, all of a sudden here, get these little pockets of these volcanoes and they establish all these little mountains and stuff. So we start getting um, lakes that start establishing themselves. This is where you get some of your first freshwater fish that are happening uh, in, because you get these isolated aspects uh, where these fissures and things like that are happening. Water, you've got runoff from all of the different ice ages and rain just naturally happening. That comes through, establishes all these interesting little lakes, and that's where we get a, some of our first freshwater fish that, uh, that happen, and that's about 15 million to two million years ago as well. Um, so, going on on this, about 6 million to 220 million years ago, so, or 220,000 years ago, sorry. 6 million to 220,000 years ago. All of a sudden, we get the Cascade Range that starts happening. Series of volcanoes, cone volcanoes that are erupting up, obviously, into, uh, into Washington as well. So that's where your Cascade Range starts establishing itself. So at this point, we've got the Coast Range that's established, and we've got the Cascade Range. So that creates this interesting little valley that is the Willamette Valley, right? So then we get into about, oh, that's Eastern Oregon stuff that, you've got a lot of activity that happens in Eastern Oregon as well, but what we really wanna get into, uh, just so we don't take a whole lot more time, is the actual floods themselves. So you've established this valley that's here, this is the Willamette Valley. You've got the, the gorge that goes through here, the Columbia River is going out here to the ocean, right? So about 15,000 to 10,000 years ago, coming out of our last ice age, <clears throat> have all these glaciers that are move, moving down, huge, huge uh, ice sheet that uh, comes down from Canada all the way down, extends all the way down into Missouri, basically, um, in, into the middle part of the, the United States, and it kind of cuts across, uh, starts melting. So you have all these glaciers that are moving and carving up the, the land. Um, and so in Montana, 
Missoula, Montana, as a matter of fact, the Clark Fork River was established at this point. You've got all of these glaciers that start coming down into the Clark Fork River. You have to understand that the Ice Age melting, it's not a whole event, it's a series of, of events that it's not like just it warms and then all of a sudden melts. It's still cold, <laughs> it's just, it's slowly melting. And you've got these glaciers that are coming up and they start clogging up at the Clark Fork River at Missoula, Montana. You can actually see where this happened. Um, if you go to the University of Montana there in Missoula, you can see uh, where this all happened there. But uh, the glaciers start backing up and they create this huge ice dam. Um, so uh, this, this ice dam was about um, a mile wide and about 15 miles deep. It was huge. So all of the melting water starts backing up because of this ice dam, creates what's known as prehistoric glacial Lake Missoula. And so it's the largest prehistoric lake that we know of. Again, um, may have been others, but that's the largest one that we know of. It starts filling up and it's billions and billions and billions of gallons of water. Um, all of a sudden, you've got all of this pressure so ice freezes at a different temperature, you know, because of pressure. So the, the ice on the top is a lot thicker than the ice on the bottom of the dam. So basically, you've got the dam that's building up like this. And so it can't handle the pressure from that water and it finally gives way. And it breaks, all of that water comes from the bottom out. And in a matter of about two days, this whole lake drained <laughs> and flooded the uh, western part of Montana, Idaho, eastern part of Washington. So all of this water is coming down and just ripping through at, at a t intense, intense speeds. You know, you're talking about, you know, 70 mile an hour currents and stuff. I mean, really fast. And it's just ripping rocks and, and trees and debris, and you've got ice that's all in it as well. And it's carving up all of this landscape out in eastern Washington. And so it rips off the topsoil, basically. Well, all of that water, you've got the, the, uh, the Cascade Range that comes up here. You've got a little rim that uh, is higher elevation, starts backing up. So the water starts backing up because it, it can't go out. So it starts filling up into the gorge as well. But the gorge can only handle so much water, and so that water starts backing up, right? So you get this lake. It's called Lake, Prehistoric Lake Murray. It's a temporary lake that only lasts for a few days. The water is backing up. Well, it starts filling up down here into the valley because it can't go out to the ocean fast enough. And so around Portland, it starts backing up and filling up this whole area in the Willamette Valley, and it creates this temporary lake called Lake Allison. That's um, where you get the Allison Hotel. <laughs> um, and so Portland was under about 400 feet of water at that time. Uh, that's the, the high mark. So this area eventually will drain out around where Corvallis is, um, eventually, and then out into the ocean from the, uh, from, the, from the Columbia River area. But this was a series of floods that happened. So after the first one, same thing happens. It starts freezing again, starts backing up. So about every 75 years, the same event would happen. You know, and you get this flood and all the topsoil is getting ripped off. And so that's one of the benefits that the Willamette Valley actually has is that we took all of the topsoil from eastern Washington, western Idaho, and it all ended up down here. That's why the valley is so rich.
you can go down to Eugene and the topsoil goes about a quarter mile deep in some places. I mean, it's really deep. Uh, it's sitting on top of all that basalt. So that's what actually established and created the floods to happen the way that they did. If the coast range hadn't been there, it would have all just flooded out. It would have never filled up. Uh, you know, if the gorge didn't exist, it all would have just come down. So those are the things that created everything that led up to having the floods be the way that they were and as dramatic as they were. So very interesting. <laughs> so as a result of of the floods, then and we've heard this before, but get, kind, of, get, kind of continue the story for us. Yeah. As a result of the floods, what does that make the Willamette Valley? What does that make unique about the Willamette Valley? What does it make the valley? What, what, is, what, what unique values does it give the Willamette Valley? Well, it gives your valley floor, I mean, rich soil, uh, where when you're talking about eastern Washington, it's all sandy loam soil. It's all windblown from, uh, from the mountains and stuff. They don't have any topsoil anymore. And so, and it's all high desert out there now. I mean, and so it sits in a rain shadow, kind of like Eastern Oregon does as well. It sits in a rain shadow of the Cascade Range, and so they don't get very much rainfall out there. So not a lot grows to create your topsoil out there. So there's not a lot of plant life that's degrading and decomposing to create that plant life. So what we've got down here is just a perfect area uh, because we are, you know, moderate temperate climate. You've got this great growing area that's uh, that's here. Um, it's, uh, it really provides for, that's why, you know, you've got so many things that grow on the, on the valley floor here in the, in the Willamette Valley. <clears throat> One of the things, though, also, when you look at your different little, little hills and mountain ranges and stuff like that, the Dundee Hills or the, or the uh, Shehalem Mountains, you know, going down, you've got McMinnville uh, area there. Uh, You've got higher elevations that were above that flood line, and so you're you're retaining a lot of uh, your clays and things like that uh, that didn't get ripped off uh, from the flood lines, and so uh, that's really good for grape growing. Um, and so they were those higher elevation site, those higher elevation sites tend to retain more clay um, because it wasn't all washed away because of the uh, the floods, and you get into sedimentary aspects with uh, with some of those lower elevation sites. Um, so yeah, that was one of the things. So you've got the Shehala Mountains that were already established. So that created a little area like where uh, Highway 99 is going up if you're going to Portland. All that water just comes through right in there. And it would have been, it would have been so immense when the floods were happening. Uh, I mean, there were people hypothetically around at that time. It was only 15 to 10,000 years ago. Uh, so there would have been natives here at that time. Can you imagine? I mean, just the noise, <laughs> the water rushing through, boulders coming down. Um, if you ever go uh, outside of McMinnville here, uh, there is a, um, a big boulder that came down from Canada in the floods uh, that's, uh, that's out there. It's really neat. So, but you see them all over the places, big, uh, the big, big rocks that came down. It was just ripping. I mean, I can't imagine a huge boulder coming at you at 60 miles an hour. That would just be insane. But yeah, so uh, so that flood line out in Washington, the the, the because it was so close uh, out here to the original uh, dam break, it was closer. The flood line goes up to about 1,200 feet there. That's where the lake uh, Lake Murray goes up to about 1,200 feet. So uh, we actually have a vineyard that we source fruit from that's out, uh, it's the most westerly planted vineyard in the Yakima Valley, and it sits about 1,300 to 1,500 feet, so it was actually above that flood line, and it retains uh, the, uh, the original blue clay soils that are out there. Uh, it's one of the few vineyards that actually does, the rest of it's all sandy loam stuff. Really neat. Awesome. 
But yeah, so that's what, uh, that's what created the event to happen the way that it did. The lake uh, would have been just interesting to see, though. If you stand up in the Chehalem Mountains, a lot of times if the fog's rolling in, it will, the fog will settle about where like, that lake would have been. And you just see the little tops of like, the Dundee Hills that are sticking out. You, know? and you can imagine, like, oh, that's what, what the lake would have looked like at that time, all the way down to like, Eugene. So, that, so from, the, from the floods, how long until the landscape that we recognize today starts to take shape? Uh, oh, it, it, the landscape was really already here uh, during that time. It hasn't changed a whole heck of a lot because uh, that was only 15,000 years ago. So there hasn't been a whole lot of activity that's happened. I mean, obviously you've got, you know, some volcanic activity that's uh, that's been happening in the Cascade Range and stuff. Obviously St. Helens, you know, is still making its thing. But uh, yeah. Um, there hasn't been a whole lot of activity since then because it's, it's a relatively short period of time, geologically speaking, because you're talking about you know, 300 million years between some of these events and 50 million or 100 million years, and that's a long time, uh, at least in our, our perspective. But yeah, it hasn't changed a whole heck of a lot since, uh, since the floods actually happened. What about how long it took the water to, to get out? A few days. Uh, it, would, it would have been a, yeah, uh, you know, I mean, that's, they, they estimate uh, just knowing, like, the rate of water going out and stuff like that. It was uh, five, six days, something like that, you know, that we would have had a temporary lake. Um, but obviously you would have, as it's settling out, you would have little pools of water that would stay around and stuff. You'd have all these little inland lakes, you know, in the valley that would, uh, might, might be around for longer if they were lower elevation sites and they wouldn't drain out. Uh, you know, as quickly. So you'd have all these little temporary lakes and stuff. Very interesting. <laughs> it's crazy. It really is. But had, you know, had things been a little bit different, geologically speaking, had certain things not happened, um, had you not had the coast range, you know, to, to block that water in, uh, had you not had the Cascade Range the way that it is, it wouldn't have, uh, wouldn't have happened the way that it, uh, the way that it did. If there had been a way for it to come out of the gorge, it might have come out the eastern side, you know, into eastern Oregon, and it never would have come this far, possibly. You know? But it didn't have any way to escape out there. It was just in that gorge and just channeling it in. And you can imagine all of that water coming in into this narrow, into this narrow little area, uh, and just the force, the pressure that would have, uh, would have been going through the gorge. It would have been crazy. And then it comes out, obviously, like when you get into Portland, like outside of the gorge, and it would have just, you know, exploded all over. Uh, yeah. Pretty neat. So that's, that's that. But that's kind of what, uh, what you don't hear a lot of. You hear a lot about the floods, but you don't hear a lot about, like, what actually took place to create the floods the way that they did. Absolutely. Any questions? Mm -hmm. <laughs> My horrible, <laughs> horrible drawing up here. We can see, he gets the point across. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, thank you. We really well, thank you very much. Absolutely. And, and yeah. So yeah, nice. absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. 
The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University, with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.